Hello, Reno Whites listeners, and welcome to this week's episode of Reno Whites. My name is Connor McQuivy. I'm your host. Good to have you here with me. This week on the podcast, I am excited to welcome Yvette Cantu Schneider. Yvette was recently featured in a documentary on Netflix called Pray Away. It's about the conversion therapy movement, churches telling gay people that they could pray away the gay, that they could be straight if they wanted to. This is not something we've seen as much in recent years, but I remember growing up, it was a huge part of the media narrative, and Yvette was the leader of women's ministry for Exodus International, the largest ex-gay organization in the United States. Since then, she's left the organization and is a big part of this movie, Pray Away, featuring leaders of the ex-gay movement who are now speaking out against conversion therapy and these practices. I'm so grateful that Yvette came on the show. It was a really, really great conversation about how she got involved, about how it all worked behind the scenes, and what's going on now in this area. If you haven't yet seen Pray Away on Netflix, please check it out. It's a very important film, and I'm incredibly grateful that Yvette came to talk to me about the movie and about her experience and what she's doing now to make things better. Before we jump into the interview, this week's episode is brought to you by DJ Trivia. As you all know by now, I host Trivia Nights for DJ Trivia at several local venues around town. It's super fun. It's free. You can win prizes. I really loved hosting at multiple venues because we have different crowds at each one. You can find a bar or a restaurant that's in your neighborhood, that's your style, that you like their food. We have options all around town. If you go to DJTriviaNevada.com, you can see all of the venues and find where you want to play. This episode is brought to you by This Is Reno. This Is Reno is our local news source. Local stories covered by local reporters. If you want to know what's going on in town, This Is Reno really is the best local news. Go to thisisreno.com. I subscribe to their daily newsletter. I get the headlines every day and can read the articles. I am also a paying subscriber because they're a great organization and I definitely want to support them. I hope you will too. And now, this week's guest, Yvette Cantu-Schneider. Yvette Cantu-Schneider, welcome to Renoites. Thank you so much for coming on the show to talk to me today. Thank you so much for having me. It's really exciting to talk to you. So you are one of the major figures in this new documentary that came out on Netflix recently called Pray Away. It's about conversion therapy, which was still exists now, but was like a major thing while I was growing up in, you know, like 80s, 90s, early 2000s. And this documentary really shines a light by interviewing the former leaders of that movement. And you were one of those people. So can you just start by telling a little bit about how you came to be involved in this kind of conversion therapy, ex-gay movement and what that trajectory was? Like, where did you start? How were you involved? And then where are you now? Well, I became a Christian. I have to go as far back as that because it was a long process for me to become an, as involved as I was. And I became a Christian in 1992 after so many of my friends ended up with AIDS, including my best friend, Ed. And I had come out when I was 21 years old and toward like six months later of that year, Ed told me that he had AIDS and that I moved in with him and I moved in with his boyfriend and helped them because they both had AIDS. And one by one, different friends were 
testing HIV positive. And at that time, we were talking about like the late 80s here, people were living on average about 15 months after diagnosis. So it wasn't a disease that you could live with. It was something you knew that you were going to die and it wasn't going to be very much longer. And I, I really went into an existential crisis. And there was a friend at work who said, well, why don't you come with me to church? So I didn't want to because in the beginning, because I had been to, I'm from Southern California. I'd been to gay pride parades in Long Beach, West Hollywood. And there are always people there with signs saying that gay people are going to go to hell. And he said, no, 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 my church isn't like that. And so I went and I, I really felt God's presence and it was a comforting presence to me. And so I became a part of that church and then it wasn't long after, I mean, it was probably like a year after they said, um, yeah, you can't be gay. Mm. And they, and they called me into a meeting actually and said, you know, we have to cast out the spirit of homosexuality. This is a common experience. It's not just what happened to me, but I was living in a house at that time with seven other young Christian women and the pastor's wife got really mad at me at this meeting. She's like, I saw a spirit of homosexuality on you and we need to cast it out. And you should have told us about this. And the woman who was my mentor was there, Shelly. And she's like, well, she did tell me about it. I just didn't think it was a big deal. Well, and the pastor's wife went on, this is, she's putting the other girls at risk in the house. And, and, and so they cast this demon out of me and then told me, I couldn't do anything but read my Bible and pray besides going to work. Couldn't socialize, nothing. And then I had to confess to all of my friends that I was slash had been gay. Because, you know, in the Christian world, it's like once you've confessed something or something's a demon's been cast out of you, then you're free. And you just have to walk as if it had never happened and live your life as it as if it had never happened. And so that's what I was told. So I had to go and confess to all my friends, which was really sort of weird to say the least. Yeah. You know, because they're wondering where did this come from? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I actually wrote an article on this recently, just the other day. And one of my roommates from that time said that that was the weirdest thing. I didn't know why you were doing it. I felt really bad for you. <laughs> you had to do it. But then I was a true believer. I believed the pastors. I believed what they were telling me, you know, was in the Bible is true and that this is the way that I needed to live. And so I just wanted to be super Christian. So I ended up going into ministry, campus ministry at UCLA. And it was from there that, you know, it's just like one step after the next, after the next, I was invited to speak in Orange County and they wanted me to do a testimony about how I used to be lesbian, which I had never done before. I had never done anything like that before because in my church, it was just you pray and it's gone and never mention it again. Don't talk about it. You better just be living right. Mm -hmm. And, but once you branch out into other forms of evangelicalism that aren't as charismatic and spirit filled as my church was, then it becomes more of a psychological thing. So, um, like some of these Exodus ministries, they'll go back and say, well, 
you have a bad relationship with your same sex parent and that's what the problem is. And so for boys, obviously, it's their father. You didn't have a good relationship with your father growing up, girls with your mother. And that's what led to this deficit that you're now trying to make up for with same-sex relationships. So that's really what they wanted me to talk about. And I did because I was invited to speak. It was part of the mayor's prayer breakfast in, in Orange County. So I did that. And then a woman came up to me and said, would you consider relocating to Washington, D.C.? And I thought, who are you? I don't, this seems so weird. Like stuff like that just doesn't happen. But I ended up like a month later flying to D.C. and having an interview with Family Research Council because it ended up that she was on the board. Hmm. And they hired me right away. And I remember talking to my pastor and saying, is this something I should be doing? And he said, of course, you know, at this point, we would want God to tell us you shouldn't be doing this. This is what you were meant to do. This is what you were created for. This is God's calling on your life. And I really look back at that time and think, gosh, I should have questioned all of this. And in my mind, I was, but I wasn't questioning it enough Mm -hmm. to where I would say, I'm not going to do this anymore because this was my community now. And where would I go? That's how I always felt. Where where am I going to go if I leave here? Mm -hmm. And so I went and I started working for Family Research Council public policy organization, conservative in Washington, D.C., and working, you know, and going to meetings on Capitol Hill, meeting with lawmakers. And through that is when I started meeting other so-called ex-gays and people with through Exodus. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people come up through their church, like their church will send them to an Exodus ministry And then that's how they, and they rise up in leadership. But mine was sort of the opposite where I was already in leadership position when I became acquainted with Exodus. So it's interesting. You talked a little bit about how you feel like you should have questioned more. Yes. But it seems like in this entire ecosystem, when you do have questions or doubts or concerns that they there is only one place that you were supposed to be able to go, and that is to your church and to the people that are telling you what God says. And is that part of the process is kind of cutting you off from other ways of examining what you should do? Is, was there ever the sense that you were, I'm assuming, not associating with your gay friends from before? And like you said, you wanted to be super Christian and jumped right in. Was there a, do you think, intentional or purposeful kind of separating you from other opinions or other views so that when you did have those doubts and concerns, there really was only like one answer and one place to go? Absolutely. 100%. You couldn't, we were told we couldn't watch TV. We couldn't listen to secular radio. The only books we read were Christian books besides the Bible. It was always just one viewpoint Mm -hmm. and never another. So if you went, I had a friend who, that I, this, young woman I met at UCLA who happened to late in later years produce, but I'm a cheerleader. Mm-hmm. Remember that movie? Yeah. I, I read that in your article <laughs> and I've, I've seen and really enjoy that movie. So I think yeah. it's, uh, it's interesting that you had that connection. But, but when I, when I met her, that's when I heard, you know, when she's telling me, you know, that she's, she's a lesbian, she's a Christian. And that just blew my mind. 
because I thought that can't be. That just means that you're doing something wrong. And I spoke to my pastor about it on campus and he just said, well, she just wants to find a justification for her sin. You need to knock the dirt off your shoes and keep walking and leave her to it. Like there was always, you're wrong. You're wrong to question. You're wrong to doubt. You can express your doubts, but then they're going to find what's at the root of this doubt. Is it your ego? Is it your pride? There's always something behind it. Is it your flesh? You really want to do something that the Bible says you're not allowed to do, and you're just trying to find a way to do it anyway. Yeah. So there, if I were to ever say to someone, I'm doubting this, I would get shut down completely. Mm. Yeah. Well, I think there's this kind of like good versus bad binary thinking that tends to exist, especially in religious communities where like the very concept of sin is this like pure badness and an evil thing. Then everything gets kind of bundled into that. And like you said, like if you have doubts, if you have questions, all of those things are just indicators that you are bad. They talk about this a little bit in the documentary of this desire to be good is a driving force behind what brings people in and keeps people in these groups. And that is kind of like weaponized against people that are participating in these things, right? Like they see this and use that as a way to to steer people to think certain things or behave certain ways, right? Right. Because if you're good, then you're going to inherit the promises of God. So you're protected, you're, you you know, it's almost like, well, if you're good, then bad things won't happen to you. If you're good, then God's going to have a plan and a purpose for your life and you're going to have a meaningful life. Well, what's going to happen if I don't, if I'm not, you know, then what's my life going to be like? Mm -hmm. It's going to be empty and meaningless and I don't want that. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there's it's very effective manipulation. I think it's interesting because I always associate people that end up in things like conversion therapy as usually younger people who their parents send them to conversion therapy or they, they come out and their family doesn't accept them. And your story was interesting to me that you were out and going to pride parades and you know you said in your article you were wearing like a uh, pink triangle pin yep. with ACT UP and you know the, like the AIDS activist organization. And that switch from being not questioning or, I mean, I guess the the question was while you were out and had these gay friends and were actively engaged, I like, obviously I don't use the word gay lifestyle, but you know, you had a gay social circle, things like that. Yeah. Why do you think, did you feel that you were struggling with homosexuality before you were told that it was a struggle? Like when you were in that part of your life, would you have described yourself as you know, distraught about it or struggling with it or before you were religious, was it a problem or was that problem kind of created for you when you were told, oh, this is actually bad. Oh, this is actually sinful. What was that like kind of mentally for you when you were in that space before you were a Christian, before that was kind of put on you? You know, that's a great question that no one ever asks me, but no, I was not struggling like a lot of people are, especially when they're raised in Christian homes and they come out and there's always this feel, this little background feeling of guilt or I'm doing something wrong. I didn't have any of that. And I always thought it was crazy that people did like, no, you just have to be yourself. And 
I was one of the first people to join GLAD. This was in, in Laguna Beach, and they had like these stapled together flyers, pamphlets that they would hand out. I went to these meeting, these GLAD meetings when it was just so new and small. Like, no, we need to be active. We need to be visible. I would tell everyone because I believed, like ACT UP said, silence equals death. You need to tell everyone, tell all my friends that I was gay, people at work. So no, I did not think that there was anything bad about it or wrong about it not until I got into the church. And so that makes my story very different because most people feel, I won't say most, but there are many that I've encountered over the years that follow the pattern that you just described where their parent, they come out to their parents as teenagers, their parents try to get them fixed. Mm -hmm. And then they're sort of stuck in that pattern. It sounds like the foundations of these things is this sense of shame or that you're wrong or that you're bad as the the foundations of conversion therapy. And that is not a, a healthy way to, to view yourself. And there's this kind of pseudo psychological scientific approach that you mentioned a little bit about looking at quote unquote causes of you being gay. But it seems like the actual process of trying to change your sexual orientation is really rooted in shame and humiliation and punishment and all of these negative fear-based tactics. So when you started and you were kind of advancing through these organizations and into leadership positions, did you have any conflict around that approach? Like, again, there's this this dichotomy of saying like, oh, it's Jesus's love. The church is full of love and welcoming and, and supposed to be presenting itself as something better and wholesome and good. But all of the tactics are, they're mean and they're cruel and they're insulting and they're they're negative. They're talking about your your badness. Was there a conflict there? How did you how did you kind of shift into that way of thinking of gay being bad when you had spent so much time embracing it? Well, I never thought it was okay for gay people to be made fun of. There were times when pastors, even from the pulpit, would sort of imitate gay men's mannerisms that I found very offensive. And I went and I talked to the pastor's wife and I said, I don't like this. How how could I ever bring any of my gay friends to church if this is the way they're going to be treated when they come here? And she said, well, you know, that's, I agree with you. I don't think gay people should be mocked. But you have to look at it this way. If you're driving down the road and you see that the road is out up ahead, wouldn't you get out of your car and flag people down and say, you know, start waving your hands? The road is out. The road is out. So the message was if someone's going to their eternal destruction, it's actually loving for you to tell them that that's what's going to happen. And it's loving for you to help them change their behaviors. Yeah. So kind of just this ends justifies the means attitude of we know this might hurt someone's feeling, but we're saving their eternal soul. So it's worth it. Right. Yeah. What did your friends think? So you had community of gay people that you knew they were your friends. What was that like? Obviously, you were kind of told to separate from them and to not associate with them. Did you stay in touch with anyone? Did you get a lot of hurt feelings from your friends? Did you have communication with them? What was the general reaction to your social life? 
well, most of my friends were men. I, you know, I had had a couple of relationships with women and we had broken up and I had, you know, a couple lesbian friends, but not really. Most of them were men and they were just in the throes of the AIDS crisis. Not all of them, but the vast majority of them. So I sort of just disappeared Mm. except for with Ed and Ed tried to understand. He really did. But what was there to understand? He's like, there's no way I would be able to change. I can tell you that right now that would never happen. (laughs) I know that I would never be able to change. And I did have such a struggle with that. And we had conversations around that, but before we could, you know, get to a place where he could really challenge me, he was too sick to do that anymore. Mm. So the one person who probably really could have reached me was Ed. And then he passed away before we got to that point. And other friends were just like, especially my lesbian friends, they were just so mad at me that like, oh my gosh, don't even talk to me anymore. This Mm -hmm. is nuts. Yeah. And then I'm sure that when those kind of things happen and you talk to them about the people in your religious community, that that just probably goes to reinforce what they're telling you already about, you know, people aren't going to accept you this way or that these people are set in their ways. Those kind of. Yep. Their hearts have been hardened against God. And so this is, you can't expect anything else. This Mm -hmm. is how they're going to be. Yeah. Yeah. You, you advanced pretty quickly, right, through the ranks and into leadership and into these organizations. What do you think was the reason for that? What, what made a good leader? What did they see in you that made a good story or made you a good symbol for this movement? You know, that's interesting because uh, I've been talking to my husband about that. And I said, it's very difficult to find someone who's a survivor who has never had an opportunity to be on stage. Because if someone is well-spoken and they represent themselves well, you're going to be on the stage. You're going to be at an Exodus conference if that's the world that you're in. You know, you're going to be promoted quickly if you can speak well, if you can present well, if you can interview well all of those types of things. If you stick with the party line and you never deviate, you're going to go far. Mm -hmm. If you're constantly questioning and if you're constantly being a pain to people, then you're not going to. (laughs) So in the movie, there's this, this guy, John Paul, who was kind of the face of the movement for a long time. And he says in the movie that the reason was because he basically lied about having desires and he would get up there and say, no, I don't want to be with men anymore. I don't have any of these things. And that was what sold. That was what people wanted to hear. And that's what made him kind of the face of the movement. And it sounds like that's a similar situation with you where sticking to that party line and going up there and saying, not only can this work, but it has worked on me. And here I am to tell you about it. Is that just kind of the, the key to the castle for leadership there? For sure. Yeah, absolutely. And then Alan Chambers, he was the president of Exodus when it shut down. So he's the one who decided to shut it down. And I was the director of women's ministry. He was a very good friend of mine, but he used to on stage towards the end 
when things were starting to fall apart and he wasn't so sure about it anymore, he'd say 99% of people don't change. And he'd always say that 99% of the people don't change. And then when it came to, well, who's the 1%? Yvette's the 1%. Mm-hmm. Yvette's the one person I know who's changed. Mm-hmm. And that was because I'm bisexual. And so I can live in a heteronormative world and pass as non-queer. And that's what he was looking at until, you know, until I finally had to get to a point where I admitted to myself, you know what, I've never lost same-sex attractions. Those never went away. I was just able to live as a heterosexual person. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned in the documentary and when we talked earlier that part of it also is this like coding as straight like you passed as straight yes a lot of the guys who were part of this program maybe they didn't come off as straight and they didn't want to put people on stage if they were flamboyant Mm. or feminine and having uh you know a woman who could pass as straight was an appealing thing and also there's this racial element your last name was Cantu, and it kind of added this diversity cred so what was what was what went into those those decisions you think so but that was different that was i mean if you went to an exodus conference you'd see a lot of men on stage that did not pass as straight in fact you'd probably laugh and say come on who who are you kidding (laughs) And that was actually what the leadership at Family Research Council thought. They thought, we can't get these guys to come and represent what it is to be ex-gay because they still look gay. Like, no one's going to believe that they're not gay. And behind the scenes, they'd say, we know these guys aren't going to last. Like, they're not going to stay they can say they're straight, but we know they're not. That was basically the message behind the scenes they'd talk about. So we need a woman because women are going to be, so they thought, you know, less likely to fall, less likely to go back into the lifestyle as they would call it. And yeah, so my, my dad's Mexican American was, he passed. And so my last name is Cantu growing up until I got married. And Yeah. So it's like you have the Mexican-American element. I'm a woman. I can pass it straight. And that was perfect for going on shows like The O'Reilly Factor and shows like that. We're going to have a head-to-head talking heads debate with someone from the Human Rights Campaign. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's one thing that was really interesting and I've been thinking a lot about was the, the media environment at the time where there's a clip from I think Maury or someone where it's all these you know women on stage and Maury's like but some of them are men and there's all this kind of like uh just complete misunderstanding of sexuality and gender that was complete totally mainstream so there's these head-to-head debates about whether people can change being gay and like you can't and we all know that but the mainstream media basically gave this platform to you and all of the, you know, ex-gay ministries, all these organizations. And do you think that the the media ecosystem at the time is a huge contributing factor to why all of this worked in the first place? That you could get a platform, you could go on shows, you could get articles. Like it was just generally accepted and pushed out by 
by the media at the time. And now that's not really the case. I don't think you can go on mainstream news nowadays and like preach the ex-gay lifestyle or whatever. That's just not going to fly. Well, you might be able to do that on Fox. Right. But, (laughs) but that's, it was different then because we didn't have social media, you know, so there was, there were very few ways to really get information. If you wanted information or if you wanted to connect with people, how did you do that? You, you, all you could do is go to an Exodus meeting and then you would just meet other so-called ex-gays. And the Christian world is very insular, like we spoke about before. Mm -hmm. So the Christians aren't the ones that are going to be so interested in watching television, at least at the time, and watching Maury or watching any of those shows that would say, you know, these are actually, these are men or whatever. I think that, like for me, going on news shows would be, I am giving, I'm giving talking points to the people who already believe like I do. So I would go on a show and I would have three talking points. This is what we were trained to do. You have your three talking points. It doesn't matter what questions they ask you. You just keep going back to those, somehow segueing back to those three talking points. And those would be the three points that I'm trying to get across to, you know, Joe and Jill Christian watching at home so that they can then go and tell their friends, oh, Yes, people can change, and this is why. Yes, this is why they should change. Those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. But I don't know really what impact that the media had then on people who were sort of on the fence. So it was more of just kind of reinforcing it and um, like spreading your talking points among people who were maybe already leaning that way or already religious right. and trying to create influence in those areas rather than mainstreaming? I would think so, yeah. Because even since then, I mean, the, the, the way society has gone even since then has been more and more open, more and more accepting. Yeah. And I think it was interesting because I don't know what year it was, maybe like 2000, 2001, I was on this show, PBS Debates Debates, and it was a three-on-three debate. And it was, is homosexuality a sin? And so we had crazy, you know, it was like me and and I think a Presbyterian guy and a Baptist professor from the University of Texas of all places. So you'd think you'd get people who were more of the cloth, right, than the three of us. Mm-hmm. But that's what they did. And then on the other side, there was a, a lesbian Jewish rabbi and another lesbian Christian pastor and this other guy. And I thought we did great in that debate. And the, the people they'd get for the audience were these old people, like from the old folks home that they'd kind of bus in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is in New York city. And afterwards they were all, all of them were talking, were going up and talking to, you know, the gay ministers and not us. Mm. Like even then, even back then it was, and, and even among an older crowd of the senior citizens, they still weren't swayed by any of, of our arguments. It was always, you're just preaching to the choir only because you really can't, 
there's never a good argument for someone who doesn't already believe the way you do. All those arguments fall flat. You have to use, you know, this fundamentalist approach to really suck people in. Mm -hmm. Did you have the sense or did the other leaders have the sense while all this was going on that you were fighting an impossible losing battle and things were going to change and you were just trying to like stem the tide of this growing tolerance and acceptance? Yes. Yes. So, (laughs) I mean, we'd have, they'd give us pep talks all the time at work when I worked at Family Research Council about, you know, God's way is the true way and it's not going to be easy and people aren't always going to agree with us and they probably will never agree with us. And that's fine. We still have to do what we do. Hmm. But in order to keep these organizations alive, if you're going to keep something like a family research council, a focus on the family, an exodus, heritage foundation, all of Liberty Council, you have to create a crisis. That's the only way to get people to give money. Mm -hmm. So I spoke once at Dartmouth and I spoke at college campuses quite a bit, but this was the craziest time. And people were yelling at me afterwards and the security had to pull me out. And the first thing Monday morning when I got back into the office, there was someone there from the publications department or the ones that sent out the mass mailers. Okay, we're going to interview you about what happened and then we're going to put it in our next mailer. It ended up being their second highest month of contributions second only to Dr. Dobson's from Focus on the Family, who had done it the month before. So it's that you have to create this urgency, this sense of the culture's collapsing. People are going to be anti-Christian. We're not going to be able to worship the way we want to. And you have to give money to this cause. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, there's two things there. The, the fundraising part I want to ask you about, because I do think that it's interesting that these organizations seem to be so focused on money and power and growth and using this like fear-based tactic as a a path to more money and power like the the goal is not actually saving the souls or maybe it was for some of the people that are participating yeah but do you think that there was a general attitude in addition to saving the people of also like how do we gain power and influence was that was that the goal? Absolutely. I mean, that goes back to Jerry Falwell, the moral majority, and trying to, you know, because because prior to that, Christians were not very involved in the political world. And then, you know, the conservatives were looking for a way how, you know, we need a bigger voting block. How are we going to get it? And then it was, well, how are we going to appeal to the Christians? And the Christians didn't want to dirty themselves with politics. Mm -hmm. So create a crisis to where they have to become involved, which is you're not going to be able to worship. You're going to be persecuted for being a Christian. And that's what pulled them in. Yeah. So, you know, and the gay issue, as they called it, and, and Jerry Falwell was very big on that, that motivated people. They're going to start teaching your kids that it's okay to be gay. Right. And they're doing the same thing because now that that being gay is widely accepted for the most part in our culture at large, 
Now they're moving into the trans issues. And Mm -hmm. this in 2021 has been the worst year for legislation against trans people that we've ever had. And that's the reason. It's like people were not clamoring for trans bills so that trans women in particular couldn't use the women's restroom. There weren't people that were on the streets carrying signs saying, this is what we want. This is absolutely manufactured. Liberty Council, Family Research Council, like, you know, we're going to reclaim the culture and by manufacturing something that we can get our people behind. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that part of it is this kind of strategy of framing yourself as a victim that's under a serious threat and that that justifies these ways of quote unquote like fighting back. And that's something that I think extends beyond just the LGBTQ issues. But I see that a lot in religious communities in general. Like there is this victim complex which is a fundamental part of the strategy. And I think that some people know it's a strategy and a lot of people buy into it and actually feel threatened and uh, under attack all of the time when, I mean, we're a very religious country. (laughs) Like there's a lot of Christians and they, you know, are not under this like devastating threat of being unable to worship or like churches are not being closed. Like people are able to worship as they want to, but this narrative of we're under attack, we're under attack seems to have been the driving story from, you know, as long as I can remember about a variety of issues. Right. And that was also one of my concerns and not concerns, but just something that was, that I thought about with pray away that these ex gay groups, the ministries that still exist are going to use it to fundraise. Mm, Are they? It looks like it. <laughs> so, I mean, I guess the question there is like, is how do you, how do you deal with that then? If, if pushing back against the like hugely damaging things like conversion therapy gives more fuel to the narrative of, oh, we're under attack and we're being silenced. And then that is used for further fundraising and increasing power. Like that's a dilemma. It is a dilemma, but I still think the numbers are on our side and the momentum's on our side. And, you you know, I go back and forth with social media. I love it. I hate it. I love it. I hate it. But people can find information that way. So if you have a young gay kid who's in a Christian home, a fundamentalist Christian home, because obviously not all Christians believe that it's a sin to be gay. But if you're in a, in a conservative Christian home where your parents want to change you, at least they can find information now and they can find groups online. Mm -hmm. And so I don't think it can ever really be as bad as it was when people could be isolated and could not find information at all. Yeah, no, I agree. I also struggle with social media, but I do think that, as many problems as we've seen coming out of the increase in social media. And I think it's got problems around how we communicate with each other and our ability to build communities, things like that. The, if you just look at the last 20 years of social media existing and the last 20 years of how well gay people are accepted and people's ability to find information and other gay people and things like that, it seems like, Oh, this is a good thing overall. So even though it may be, 
uh, kind of like wield it as a, you know, reinforcing the victim complex and those kind of things. I think the the impact of that is smaller than the positive impact of people being able to get that information and, and documentaries like this yeah. existing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. One of those things where, you know, there's, there's always going to be a backlash to the backlash to the backlash. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> but if, you know, if we're on the right side of things and things are going well, that backlash will pale in comparison to the advances that we right. make. Right. Yeah. Right. One of the things in the documentary I found was really interesting was this look at like modern ex-gay movements and how it's shifted away from what it was. And there's a person profiled in the documentary who has this story of saying he was trans and now he's not. And he's leading what looks like a group of young people who are kind of presented as they're multicultural, they're hip. Like we talked a little bit about the presentation of you know, like men have to be masculine. And there was this idea of to come out of the quote unquote homosexual lifestyle means like embracing these gender norms of the women that wear the makeup and the men play sports. And it doesn't seem that that is as much of the focus, at least for this group in these little clips, because you see like, you know, they all look like young hipsters and they don't look like they're being forced into a certain type of presentation. But underneath, I'm sure they're still being pushed into the same general beliefs about their actions and whether they're good or bad and those kind of things. Do you think that that is part of the, the challenge we face now is that the tactics have changed, but the message is still the same. And maybe some people are being brought in who might not have otherwise, there might've been gay guys who, you know, 10 years ago, if they were told, Oh, to be straight, you need to like butch it up and play sports. And now they're being told, Oh, you don't need to butch it up or play sports but you still have to change. <laughs> right. I don't think the message has changed one bit. It's just, you can't be gay. You can't be trans. You can't be anything but heterosexual. You have to live, you know, heteronormatively, but I see what you're saying in that, but this, this, while the core message has always remained the same, there still have been changes to it where first it was, you, you just pray, you pray away the gay. And then it was, well, let's look at the root causes. This isn't really working. Let's look at the root causes. And that was what I mentioned before, like, you know, bad relationship with your mom or bad relationship with your dad. Well, parents were the ones who were sending their kids to these ministries and then that changed and because you can't alienate the parents. Okay, well, it's the way the child perceived their relationship with their parents. So it wasn't necessarily how their parent was treating them, but their, especially for men, their, their sensitive nature, the sensitive nature of the male homosexual <laughs> caused him to withdraw from his more masculine father, you know, that sort of thing. So it's just... It, the presentation has changed because you're not going to get away as easily with you have to be this more macho male, even though I still think that that exists because you have the whole movement for complementarity where sort of separate but equal where men have these very strict gender roles within the church and so do women and men can be the leaders and the women have to be the homemakers and you can't despise being a homemaker because that's what 
your role is. That's what God created you for. So that's the your highest calling, that mm. sort of thing. That is still going to be there. And I just don't think that some of these you know, as hip as they look or as inclusive as they look. I just don't think those people who are more, I don't know, progressive, they're just, I don't think they're going to stick because the underlying message of the church is not changing. Right. Like they, they might welcome you in with your funky haircut or your cool fashion style or something, but at some point they're going to say, but now it's time for you to adopt your like rightful, like gender behaviors or whatever. Right. right? But you see, I mean, you see even with pastors, like back in the eighties or nineties, you're not going to have a pastor who's got tattoos. You're not going to have a pastor who's got even like facial hair or anything like that. And now all of them do because, you know, you got to reach the young hipster. So you got to be a hipster to reach them, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. So there's the the cosmetic changes, but <laughs> the heart change isn't there. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, and also I think that a lot of these churches are claiming that they're they're tolerant or accepting or whatever the word is for we want you to come here this presentation of we're not like your old church we're younger we're hipper we're cooler whatever but the requirements at those churches often still include celibacy so even if they're not yeah. claiming to be able to change people so this is getting getting away from conversion therapy but still getting to like behavior control stuff no but you're right you're right because it used to be yes you can change and you should change and you have to change and there are certain segments now of the church that are saying okay well maybe you can't change and we're not saying that you can but you have to be celibate so i think with you know, when you talk about conversion therapy or ex-gay ministries, then you have people saying, that's not me. That's not what we do. We, we've, we don't do that in our church. So it's, we're using conversion therapy as a catch-all term for any attempt or any mandate for someone to be straight. Mm-hmm. That's it. So if you go to a church and they're not celebrating the gifts of LGBTQ people, if they're not conducting marriages between people of the same sex, then they're not affirming. But even, what was it, just a few weeks ago at Reno Pride, there was a group there, and they were passing out pamphlets. God loves you, love your neighbor, love your neighbor as yourself. Like, what is this? Right. Mm -hmm. And so, and that's what it was. It was like, oh no, we're welcoming. People can come to our church. But all three of the people there were claiming to be formerly gay, but they weren't calling themselves ex-gay and they weren't using any of that lingo. Mm -hmm. And they were saying that their church was welcoming. That's terrible. So they're just, yeah. So they're changing tactics. Right. And then, you know, I was on the, the, uh, I did a panel discussion with free mom hugs with Sarah Cunningham. So they're huge in across the United States right now. And they're the moms that go to pride and they give hugs to anyone who's anyone who wants them. And that's what this group was doing. Mm. Like, you know, kind of take, Oh, free hugs. And we love you. But yeah, once you step through the doors of our church, the story's going to change. Yeah, that's tough. I mean, how do you feel that people who are 
religious, gay people who are religious, who are interested in religion, what's the best way for them to separate this idea of of God and their beliefs from the kind of like prescriptive nature of some of these churches about how you have to behave and uh, what's allowed and not allowed around your sexuality? You know, there's so many organizations out there right now that people can reach out to, to find affirming churches. There are plenty of affirming churches. The Rock here in Reno is an affirming church. So it's not as if every church is going to say, yes, you have to change. There are plenty of ways to be a Christian and not be told that you have to change your sexuality. And I think, you know, Connor, you know this, Kathy Baldock, Canyon Walker Connections, Mm -hmm. she's coming out with a book soon that is going to be groundbreaking and talking about mistranslation of the Bible from the Revised Standard Version, which is the first time homosexuality was used, and go into what those words really mean and how poor the scholarship has been in the past. So I think that will create a sea change as well. Mm -hmm. So not just like us former leaders speaking out, saying people can't change, but then looking at some really great scholarship saying this is not even what the Bible intended to say in the first place. Do you think that the inherent biases and beliefs and structures existing in a lot of these conservative churches care about the reality? Like even Kathy's a fantastic author and like all of the research she's done is incredible. And I'm looking forward to this book. But do you think that there are a lot of churches who will hear that and say, oh, no, like that's just some yeah. No, no, they'll dismiss it. They, I mean, they're be, they're being dismissive already when they don't even know what's in the book. Right. Like they, they're just taking little sound bites and saying, "No, this is a, totally wrong." But, but that's not the point. I mean, this is what I tell Kathy all the time. It's like that's not your audience. You're never going to change people who are so entrenched. But the ones that you reach are the ones who are on the fence. And most people who end up being on the fence, are, they don't like the treatment they see mm-hmm. of gay people, LGBTQ people in the church. They don't feel comfortable with it because there are people who are in the pews in conservative churches who are actual Christians who believe God is love. Jesus wants us to love our neighbors as ourselves. And what we see happening is not consistent with that. Mm -hmm. So those are the people that we're trying to reach with this type of information. A lot of times it's also families. Someone comes out, a a child comes out, a sibling comes out, and then they start rethinking their views, Mm -hmm. which resources like this are excellent for them. Resources like Pray Away in 1946 and Kathy's book. Yeah. How did you come out of the the ex-gay world. So that's the other thing that you had this huge pivot in your life where you you were out and you had gay friends and then you had this giant switch and spent this chunk of your life actively working with these organizations. And then now here you are actively working against them and doing <laughs> doing this work. So what was what happened that precipitated that shift away from what you were doing? Was there like a wake-up call moment? Or what has it looked like since you, since you left what you were doing and uh, have started working, you know, to improve tolerance and acceptance and those kind of things? Well, 
I was questioning it for a few years before I left altogether. And I, it, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting to me because I couldn't, Christine Stalakis, who's the director of Pray Away, she said, I've spent so much time with your material during the editing process that I can see some of the later material that your heart wasn't in it. Mm-hmm. Like I can, because I became so familiar with you, I could see that you're, you're sort of less and less passionate, but still I couldn't get away. I was the director of women's ministry for Exodus. What am I supposed to do? And then in the spring of 2009, my youngest daughter was five years old and she was diagnosed with leukemia. And it was such a harrowing experience, such a stressful time. We had to go to the children's hospital in Oakland and we were there for over a month. Her treatment was two and a half years long. And when we were at the hospital in Oakland, I just started having panic attacks and so much anxiety. And I had had anxiety before, but nothing that was treated, nothing that I spent any time thinking about. So after that month there, I came back to Reno and I I made an appointment with a therapist. And I went to see her, Diana Wright. I never say her name, but since we're in Reno and she's a therapist here. Yeah, shout it out. Yeah. (laughs) So, So I go to Diana Wright and she didn't know anything about me. This is like the first time that we met. And I told her just everything that happened with Erica. And she said, but looking at you, you know, and discussing your symptoms, this was here long before I'm convinced of it. And she said, I think that you have PTSD, you have an anxiety disorder. And a lot of the time that happens with people who are not living authentically. So you need to think about it. And I knew immediately. Like it, it's, it's my job. It's what I'm doing. And then that's when I told her all about who I was. And, <laughs> and that's what, and so then, yeah. So the other side is like, oh, that went to a sorceress, mm. a sorceress <laughs> and calling my therapist a witch. And like what she, she never told me what to do. That's not what therapists do. I just went there and I finally had it you know, I had taken a leave of absence from Exodus because Erica was sick, my daughter. And I just then could spend time by myself outside of the echo chamber, outside of influence of other people, always keeping me on track, telling me what to think. And I could actually think for myself for the first time mm-hmm. and say, look, I mean, come on, no one's changing. Give right. me a break. Well, I mean, that was the other thing too, is like you said, 99% of these people are not changing and you wrote this in this article recently is you'd see the same people coming back week after week after week year after year after year struggling continuing to struggle and there's no like legitimate success stories or you know stories of people changing so there's this kind of cognitive dissonance where you set that aside i'm sure as you're doing your job and still promoting the things that you know the organization believes in but i'm sure that underlying that you had to have known that it wasn't working and that it wasn't true. And that conflict, I imagine, creates just this constant state of stress and anxiety. It's a constant state of stress and anxiety because I'm not seeing anyone change. But at the same time, the Bible says, or so we think, according to the translations we have, the Bible says people can change. So if God is saying people can change, 
who are we to say they can't? There must be something that we're not doing right. So then it, it became a matter of, okay, let's try this technique. Let's do this. Let's try something. New. There's got to be something that we're not seeing. That's the way I'd, I was always thinking. There's got to be something mm-hmm. that's going to flip the switch. Right. And I mean, it's part of that, just this refusal to acknowledge that you might be wrong about an understanding from the Bible. Like, is that's one of the things I was never raised religious. So I have always had this idea of like, you know, some stuff might be right. Some stuff might be wrong. I don't know. It's just a book, that kind of thing. But when you're in it, there's this like fundamental belief that every word is exactly as it should be. And it's, is that part of the, the conflict is that you could just never, ever accept that, oh, wait, we read it wrong. Oh, wait, there's something we don't get. Is that just not even no, a possibility? No, it's not a possibility because then you're saying that God doesn't have the ability to communicate to you the truth. Mm. So then again, are you going to cast aspersions against God? It's it's just circular. Mm-hmm. It's <laughs> yeah, no, that's I mean that's tough if there's if there's no way to to grow and learn and change and like adapt your beliefs. No, as you learn and as things change. That's where you get stuck, I think, in this impossible situation where you believe something that you fundamentally know is not true. Yeah. There's a, there's a scripture that says, trust in the Lord your God and do not lean on your own understanding. Mm. And that one comes up all the time. Like, <laughs> the heart is deceitful above all things. Oh. So you're thinking, well, I'm deceiving myself because the heart's deceitful above all things. I, I can't know better than God. Mm-hmm. I'm supposed to trust in him. Yeah. And I don't, I don't know if we, I can't remember if we talked about this a little bit in the beginning, but this self-doubt seems to be another fundamental piece of getting people to participate in this. We have, you know, we have instincts. We know when things don't feel right. We know when something isn't correct. And this kind of conditioning to doubt your own feelings and your own right. thoughts and your own beliefs seems to be fundamental in getting people to stay involved in these things, right? It is. Like, don't, don't believe the, you know, what you see in front of your own eyes. And then that's what has to take years and years of healing afterwards. Mm. Just like tr- training, like getting people to be able to like trust, trust their themselves. own, their own mind, yeah. their own body. Yeah. And you talked on the, the documentary, you talked a little bit about, you started having these panic attacks and that it was kind of like your body telling you before your mind even really understood uh, what was going on, right? Yeah. Like, no, we're not doing this anymore. Mm -hmm. Like, we can't do this anymore. This is wrong. And then it's kind of as if my body just said, no, like, we're done with this. Mm -hmm. We can't go down this road. Yeah. What's it been like the last, uh, how long ago did you leave Exodus and all of this? and, And what's it been like since then? I left a long time ago, like a decade ago. And then I did an interview with Glad because I felt that I needed to come out and say, I don't believe this stuff is true because there were people who looked to me as a leader. So mm-hmm. I felt that I needed to say something publicly. And through that is when I met Kathy Baldock because I had never met her before, but, but, um, Ross Murray, who was the head of communications at GLAD at the time, 
he's, he asked me, have you met Kathy Baldock? She lives in Reno also. And I said, no. And, and then she messaged me on Facebook and we went hiking ends up, she lives three miles from me. And so I'm going to start working with her, but I actually learned a lot through our friendship too. And that's when I started meeting more people who were in the Christian community still who were LGBTQ people because I hadn't met any before then and seeing, oh my gosh, these people are just as committed as any other Christian I've ever met. And so all of what I had been told in the conservative world was wrong. Like here are these, you know, gay men, lesbians, trans people who are just as committed and just as have loved Jesus just as much as anyone else. That was fascinating to me. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, because you were probably told f- for the entire time that that was an impossibility, right? Yeah. So, and you didn't get to interact with those people. I imagine that a lot of the the pushback or protests or challenges you got were from non-religious people. I would think that this criticism of the ex-gay movement was probably people who associated that movement with Christianity more broadly and tied those things together. Well, this is what was hard when you when I would do debates with people from like the human rights campaign or you know any of those other organizations and they weren't coming from a, a Christian perspective. They mm-hmm. were coming from more this is inhumane. And so we could there was never any common ground where we could begin because mm-hmm. we're our, we're coming from the Bible and God, and they're coming from a more secular point of view. So right. the debates were really pointless. Yeah. Just like talking past each other, I'm sure. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So do you think that now that there is more acceptance in these affirming churches and that you've been able to engage with LGBTQ Christians, is that something that you think is a key to bringing people out of these beliefs about being able to change your sexuality? Like are, are the best people to talk to folks that are still involved in kind of ex-gay movements, gay Christians? Is that, is that who needs to be kind of on the front line of, of having these conversations? Yes. Yes. Gay Christians are the ones that need to speak out in numbers. It's the same as I, I keep going back to act up but it's silence equals death. Like you have to get out there and you have to, you know, it's not like you have to go and carry signs and picket, but just tell people, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, do it on your social media, do it with your friends and family and just start there. But the more people who do that, I mean, I'm astounded by the numbers, not now, but in the beginning, I was astounded by the numbers. Now I'm not astounded. I think that there's enough people enough gay Christians to create that change within the church. And it has to happen in the church because there are laws across the country against conversion therapy for minors, but you're talking about medical professional therapists conducting one-on-one therapy in an office. And that is not what we're talking about. That Those laws have nothing to do. They're important and they send a message, mm-hmm. but the majority of what's happening is happening in the church and those laws have nothing to do with the church. Churches aren't governed by those laws. So the only way it's going to happen is for gay LGBTQ Christians to speak out. Mm -hmm. And they are. 
Yeah, no, that's encouraging. I think that the fact that that is a more kind of like acceptable and normalized thing, even in the gay community too. And again, coming from someone who was not raised religious in any way and had a lot of generally anti-religious views for most of my life, having met more LGBTQ Christians and learning more about religion in general myself has actually kind of shifted my way of thinking about how we need to change these things. And if you come at it from a more broad anti-religious perspective, it fuels the victim complex. It doesn't actually create any kind of common ground to start with. So I think you're right about there needs to be that kind of common ground. And I'm seeing more and more of that. And even in myself having like a more, more tolerance for people who have had, you know, these bad views in the past. Like I will be honest, if you would have talked to me five years ago and I heard your story, there is a part of me that probably would have been like, Oh, I don't forgive this person. Like how could they do that? And it would be, it would be mean and it would be unforgiving and it would have this underlying sense of like cruelty and retribution and wanting to like get back at people that have caused harm. And I've kind of come away from that a little bit and adopted some of these, I guess, kind of like religious ideals of forgiveness. And like, that's a very fundamental Christian view of forgiving people and being able to integrate that into the way I look at religious communities, even though they've caused a lot of harm, I think does create this little bit of shared understanding that starts to heal that divide. Yeah. And You know, when I first left Exodus, I was very angry with the church and really didn't want to have anything to do with it. And in my mind at the time, it was you had to leave the church. If you're LGBTQ, you just had to be who you were. And the church was never going to allow that. And then I started meeting LGBTQ Christians and thought, no, wait a minute. People have a right to worship how they want. Why should they be the ones to leave the church? Mm Mm-hmm. Why should they be kicked out of their heritage, of their belief system, of what brings them comfort? No, it's the church. You know, they don't need to sever their relationship with Jesus. The church is what needs to change and start living how Jesus said to love your neighbor as yourself. Mm -hmm. What else do you want people to know about this issue? I recommend everyone watch Pray Away. And there's also been a lot of other media. There's like some podcasts. There was a um Mm -hmm. a boy erased i think i didn't see but it was like a conversion therapy film that came out a couple years ago basically there's a lot more conversation around affirming churches and these kind of issues so what do you want listeners to know about this whole world and what can people do how can people be informed or involved Uh, like what's your what's your message basically i just think that people need to I mean, if you have any sort of interest at all, you have to look to the organizations that are sort of leading the way on this. And I'm talking about the Reformation Project and the Queer Christian Network, Kathy Baldock's Canyon Walker Connections. There's so much good information to where you can start having conversations. And if there's one thing I could say, it's, start having conversations. If you don't know, ask questions. And when you do know, start talking about it because that's the only way that things are really going to change. 
Well, perfect. Thank you so much, Yvette, for coming on the show. It was really, really great to talk to you. I'm very grateful for the work that you're doing now. Like I said a moment ago, a few years ago, I might have had this sense of like resentment and anger. But if you get past that and you don't get bogged down by those feelings, I think that the sense of appreciation that comes from people who have been on the wrong side of something, who have yeah. been steered in the wrong direction, who've, I mean, been manipulated. I not to excuse anything, but a lot of it is right. like being manipulated and you have to factor that in when you're going to judge someone's actions. And I think that what you're doing now by taking that experience that you've had and using it to really make a difference in a positive way is really important. So you said speak out and I'm glad that you are out here doing that work yourself right now. So thank you so much for coming on the show. I really, really appreciated talking to you. And I recommend everyone who's listening, please watch Pray Away. I will put links to all of the organizations that Yvette mentioned in the comments. Um, and thank you again so much for, for taking the time. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This was fun. Listeners, thank you again for checking out this week's episode of Renoites. And special thanks to Yvette for coming on the show. I really appreciated having the opportunity to talk to her about this important issue. If you haven't seen Pray Away yet, please check it out on Netflix. It's a very important film. I really recommend it. I hope that you will all be sure to watch it. If you have any feedback for me, please let me know. I would love to hear guest suggestions, topic ideas, what you'd thought of episodes. My email address is Connor, C-O-N-O-R, at Renoites.com. And of course, you can find me on social media, Facebook and Instagram, at Renoites. If you really like the show, I would love for you to leave me a review on Apple Podcasts. Fun fact, if you search for Reno on the Podcasts app, Renoites doesn't come up. I've complained to Apple about it. I don't know how to fix it. But maybe if I have some more positive reviews, it'll kick the algorithm into high gear or something. So if you have a moment, go to Apple Podcasts, find Renoites, and leave me a positive review. That also helps people, when they do find the show, actually want to check it out. When they see those good reviews, they're more likely to tune in. So trying to spread the word about the show. I appreciate your help. Thank you so much. That's all I got for you this week. See you next time. See you next time.